Hello, I'm Jason Stockwell. Welcome to Inside the Hive. So Inside the Hive is a robotics podcast that focuses on three things, technology, stories, and people. Today, we're joined by Arthur Keeling. Arthur is a really enthusiastic serial entrepreneur who talks about his new business and how it helps small businesses and manufacturers in the food and drink industry and pretty much in any industry that involves packaging. Arthur's product is an end-to-end packaging solution and he talks about some of the technology that goes into it, how he came up with the idea and how he went from selling feminine hygiene products to this. Arthur's a really enthusiastic guy, so sit back and enjoy. Hello. Yeah, how's your work? Thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. I think it might only be my second podcast that I've actually ever done, so quite exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you very much to Bot High for inviting me on. Oh, thanks and for coming on. No worries, pleasure. pleasure. Um, what are you going to talk to us about today? Uh, well, I just hope to talk a little bit about sort of what I've done and sort of how I've ended up where I am, you know, how I've ended up in this seat on this podcast, what my current company is trying to achieve and what it hopes to deliver, and you know, then slightly broader within the sort of automation and robotic sector that I work, what that sort of potentially could look like, and you know, a couple of my thoughts on that. Yeah. You know, fairly you know, new to the sector, so you know, still building my opinions and you know, working out where we stand, but you know, talk about what we do, how we're gonna do it, who we're hoping to work with, and you know, a few broader, wider subject areas as well. You've said that you've come through multiple startup, or you've had multiple entrepreneurial ideas. Did, were you always entrepreneurial as a kid, or growing up? When I never really viewed it. viewed myself as entrepreneurial, that's the thing. I sort of, I just saw it as work. I sort of, I never, my grandpa's have never called it an entrepreneur. He just went, oh, you go to work. You know, very old fashioned in that way. You know, you turn up and you just do a job. It doesn't matter if you're working for yourself or for someone else. You know, it's still work at the end of the day. And it was as simple as, you know, earning pocket money. Was never given it, so had to go cut grass in the village. I never saw that, but, you know, it sounds so trivial now, but looking back, making a flyer, going around, harassing the people in the village to cut their grass now people sort of turn around and go oh that's a great entrepreneurial story and i kind of go well no that was just work you know it's sort of it is what it is in my eyes but then when i got to university i only ended up going because the course had no exams and it's based at the university of the west of england and the whole idea was it's coursework it's sort of meant to be a bit more practical which i thought would suit me with sort of i enjoyed the design technology at school I enjoyed rugby, etc. But then got there, and everyone there was sort of sat there going, "Oh, I've sold clothes, you know, on eBay and Depop, or I've sort of you know, built websites for people." And I was going, "God, these people were sort of you know, they're business magnets. This is incredible." Sort of absolutely oblivious to the fact that actually all my life I had been working, whether it be in a pub, whether it be cutting people's grass, or whatever it was, and so sort of, you know, never ever saw myself as that. And all these people came to university going, "I want to be an entrepreneur." and start my own business. And I got there going, I don't have a clue. You know, I don't know what I <laughs> yeah. want to do at all. Yeah, I'm 20, have you know, been traveling and trying to kill time almost. And from there, sort of, you know, through university, I got more and more exposed to what a startup was. I sort of probably hadn't even heard the term before university um, or even read an article or watched a video, you know, I didn't really game or anything like that. I was probably more likely to go get a stick and run around a garden. Yeah, that's a fairly, you know, fairly caveman-esque. And then sort of started being exposed to it. 
and with a friend started you know trying to sell some snow sports kits at university and so then started to get into it a bit more and you know, that sort of you know, was more but looking back at sort of you know, was definitely a learning point of sort of you know, how to deal with people went to a couple of like trade shows and things like that and so sort of just started to expose myself to the world of business and work in a sort of much more formal sense and then from there just tried various of almost call them projects but companies which you know did end up on companies house you know and haven't worked so far and I guess it's sort of now there's sort of a degree of just persistence kicking in as well and you know left university sofa surf for 14 months with people kind of going you know I go for drinks with school friends they go oh, what con are you pulling now is the <laughs> is the running joke and it's yeah I feel that every time I meet them you know each Christmas we will come back to meet up and it's something different again yeah and you kind of have to hope something will eventually kick off but yeah every time you sort of do something different you learn how to handle the different situation whether it be I've worked with large corporates, small companies, by myself, with teams, and so slowly you start to build up a better repertoire of how to work, probably quicker than a grad scheme, I'd guess, just because you're exposed at such speed to everything, and you just have to learn to adapt and overcome. So that's sort of, you know, kind of how I've ended up where I am, is through just trial and tribulation slightly, and still going. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. I almost sometimes think it's not even really started yet, <laughs> which is the worst part. Yeah, oh, completely. So, what's really interesting about your entrepreneurial background is that you came into robotics a very different way from uh, roboticists. Well, I would say I'm not a technology person. Yeah. I, I don't write code, and I, you know, I understand how sort of you know, talk and gearing works, but I couldn't write reversal for kinematics for a delta for example yeah that's so out of my comfort zone it's unbelievable but you look at sort of the traditional route and a lot of these people sort of, you know, enjoy sort of that sort of niche within the sector and it's sort of putting together those niches within the sector and maybe then putting together the skills I've learned of handling people and like working with other companies that I've sort of learned in previous failures, ventures, whatever people like to call them these days, people seem to change what they're called. And using those points to you know, help you know, bring some of these ideas to fruition. And that's sort of where I sort of almost came into it by accident through a previous business I was trying to do. That wasn't working, but people were asking for a robotic solution that we were looking into. And so Business 101, if someone wants to buy something off you, sell it to them kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it sort of shouldn't be much harder than that. So that's sort of now what we're trying to do. Yeah. And can you just talk a little bit about what your previous idea was and then how that transformed into what you're working on now? Yeah, so a friend of mine from University, Alice, and I were setting up an online subscription service, sort of slightly, I'd probably say riding that wave of the subscription models of of Harry's and Dollar Shave Club, but doing it for women, so providing the essential products they need every single month. And the idea was that the range of products women need every month are greater than that of men. You know, raises is quite simple. Women need more products. And to fulfill those orders, traditional fulfillment houses wouldn't be able to do that because the labour, hours, error that comes with people. Mm-hmm. And so we realised we needed a robot or at least an automated system to fulfil them. With the current political climate, we failed to secure a supplier which would be reliable enough and provide the price we wanted a product. 
And with that sort of barrier to it, we had other people saying, well, if you're trying to build this system to automate this process for yourselves, mm -hmm. could we use it? And we sort of kind of went, well, hang on, isn't this the obvious, well, as everyone calls it, pivot, as everyone <laughs> says in the world of startups. And so we've pivoted to sort of, you know, a much more automation business and neither of us are the technology side of the equation here. And so now it's sort of building a team which is more focused on technology whilst we're sort of, you know, looking to develop this initially for sort of much smaller companies, so providing automation for sort of the SMEs who are stuck in this sort of, you know, chicken and egg of, I need to grow, but that normally means staff, whereas we're saying, well, potentially, your growth doesn't necessarily mean employing staff, which means more management, more costs, and there's sort of a lot that goes with staff. So it's unlocking the potential of small companies, you know, artisan chocolate makers in Somerset who make everything by hand, they make an incredibly high quality product, but employing people is a nightmare for them whilst trying to make chocolate and then pack all their boxes. So our system, because it was designed to pack subscription services, is very well suited to packing and placing items. And that's what we're trying to deploy into some of these other companies now. Brilliant. So you've, you've mentioned exactly what you do there, which is helping small businesses. I don't want to simplify it, oversimplify it and say pack boxes because it the, the whole solution is a lot more than that completely. But just end-to-end, -end, what technology are you using? What, what projects are you sinking your teeth into at the moment? Well, you, packing boxes is a simple way of putting it, but actually in the process of packing now with sort of an algorithm, not only will you pack, but you'll sort, you'll quality check. You, know, you can spot broken products using machine vision. So the core element of it is moving an item from A to B. It's almost that is all we do. Whether it be a cardboard box we're folding, from a flat net into the shape you need the items to go into, or you're picking a chocolate bar to go in a box, or we've been approached by a company that sorts crab shells. Machine Vision can pick a crack out in the crab shell whilst doing the pick and place. And so you can start to identify broken product, damaged goods, and start sorting them. So not only are you doing pick and place, you're doing quality control, sorting, sort item by size, weight, because you can have sensors. So using everything from machine vision to weight measurements within robotic arms, uh, conveyors, pick and place at high speed, but also lower speed as well, depending on what's needed. So there's a range of tools that can be used that sort of, you know, a lot of people within the industry would know of. You know, there's something called a Delta, which is a high speed pick and place, but then you have your simple, more traditional, just robotic arm you might see in a film, which can move slightly heavier items. So then it's providing that range depending on the need. So it's sort of, an end-to-end -end solution but when put together it actually looks like an in IOT system which is Internet of Things which then enables you to sort of, you know, measure and quantify what work has been done and that's where the value starts to really come in for the companies. So with just talking about some of the successes that your business has had so far then, yeah. so are there any success stories that have come out of your company already? Sometimes it feels quite hard to define success, particularly in a startup, because everything's so intangible sometimes, and it's always so, so it's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But I guess if, this is how we have we have raised money off the back of the idea, so people clearly think it is worth something. And every time we've spoken to a potential customer about it, I mean, in previous companies I've worked in for and started, someone has normally told you it's bad for some reason or shot it down for whatever reason or whatever they think it's bad they've told you because they like telling you that 
<laughs> we are yet to sort of come out across a real roadblock of someone going, you guys have got this all wrong for the following. I mean, the closest someone's probably said is like, it's going to be hard, but if you get it right, it's a really, really good idea. So people, which is a bit weird, normally everyone's quite negative about what you're trying to do. Yeah. And so I guess the success is sort of, people seem to genuinely believe that if we get it right and deliver these sort of, you know, automation systems for small companies, it will unlock a huge amount of potential within the country. But then you've got the EU and wider markets. So it's sort of, almost the success is, we're getting a really positive response from customers that we are engaging. And a lot of them are saying, well, we've got to hold back whilst we deliver our first few units out there to our initial customers. And it's sort of a lack of cash and people power at the moment is more what we're suffering from, which is a, you know, a nice position to be in because at least you know, raising money is easy-ish if people want it. We've got you know, trying to grow the team. It's just trying to grow it fast enough to hopefully meet the demand. Mm. So are they your two goals at the moment, cash and people? Yeah, definitely, cash and people. And so, you know, looking for embedded software engineers, you know, electronic engineers, um, and so, you know, mechanical engineers as well, as we build some of the robots in-house. So, you know, one of the barriers, people go, well, why can't you know, a company just do this? It's like, well, actually, the skill sets required are quite diverse, and you need a wide-ranging team. And for any company which isn't vast, deploying those people is quite a challenging thing to do. And so that sort of stops them copycatting it, which helps. Um, and again, one reason why investors like it. And we're looking, you know, looking to, got six interviews today with people. You know, some of them students, some of them actually professionals. So, so you know, just trying to grow the team at the right speed, right people, that's really challenging. On top of raising money, it's sort of, Raising money almost feels like a full-time job in its own right, which is ridiculous. And then you've got an accountant to speak to about some rubbish. It's sort of that mixing pot of everything that goes into it. So I guess the success so far is sort of everything seems to be going in the right direction. It's just trying to manage the speed and you know, trajectory of that without killing ourselves off, which is a bit of a weird one to be in. Yeah. I have seen companies oversell, overpromise, and under deliver which is usually quite bad and people re won't return to you after that but there we go yeah well it's it's a big problem but it's also quite a nice it's, it's a satisfying feeling like employing people and getting yeah um, getting things in 100% so uh, that's kind of your next is is that before Christmas that you're aiming to get all this stuff yeah I mean hoping to probably close a raise Within the month, you know, we've had initial conversations, we've sort of had a bit of to and fro with a few people about you know, what it would be, how much, and it's now sort of formalising it with, you know, clear you know, projections of what we believe we can do, you know, laying out the plans in the classic old pitch deck, and, you know, we've had a bit of to and fro on those, run the pitch deck past a number of people already, and had over overwhelmingly positive responses to us as well, which again is sort of quite unheard of sometimes in the world of startups. It's quite easy to get slammed down. You know, some people have said, oh, really great, but it's a bit too soon for me to sort of consider working with you, but come back to me in six months. You know, normally it's just a straight up no. Mm. And these are busy people you're trying to engage. So it's trying to get that, get grow the team probably by three or four people in the next six months, which is quite exciting. Um, and hopefully by Christmas have a couple of our units working for companies 
uh, which would be really cool. Some of them are quite simple roles for small companies, but sometimes it's the dull job that is the thing that unlocks an SME. You know, their staff don't want to be doing it. They'd rather be doing you know, Making the chocolate is the skilled part of the equation for them. Putting the chocolate in the box doesn't feel like a value add. Obviously, getting it to the customer is key, but by helping them do that, their staff feel better about it, they feel more fulfilled, and they have just a better working life. So hopefully get some units out. Once that's out, and we've proved that yeah, we've got them with customers, then probably looking to re-raise again in the next year um, to help with that marketing growth and expansion. And the issue with us at the moment is because we do use hardware, unlike software, it's quite expensive, and that requires capital to do it, hence the raising. Whereas sometimes you can bootstrap through a startup, we're finding we definitely need cash um, to fund it with the sort of motors, computer boards and arms we're using. All right, brilliant. After Christmas and kind of two to five years, I was really curious to see what would the future of your business <laughs> look, look like in your eyes right now? I mean, I think that we would love to be in a position where we know that we've helped small companies across the country and hopefully, if we're looking that far ahead in the EU, to improve their productivity and help small business owners sort of decouple the sort of issue where they, they want to grow, but they've got to employ more staff, where maybe they can take a bit of pressure off their team and they can you know, take a bit of pressure off themselves because they know that you know, when they walk in in the day, they can start the system and it will start you know, packing or folding boxes or whatever that task is that they need, short, sorting the crowd shells. And they can focus on either sales or you know, sorting other elements of the business. Um, the classic example is if you're running a subscription business, the first role you should employ is the box packer because it's the thing that adds the least value. Obviously, it's still vital to get the boxes out the door, but it is the least value add for the company. So helping those small companies do that. I mean, we'd love to be in a position where companies are coming to us going, we've got this problem and we can go, okay, let's look at the task that you need sorting, not going, here's the tools, try and make it fit your task. So we want to, you know, companies to ultimately go, oh, here's a company where we can go to them and go, here's our problem. And we go, okay, using the solutions we built for other people, we reckon we would do this for you. And you know, focusing on tasks, not tools for them. And you know, we'd like to you know, grow ourselves into a sort of, you know, fairly serious operation where we're able to you know, help companies up and down the country. You know, we've been approached from companies you know, down in Dorset, Somerset, uh, up in Scotland. We've had one speak to us, you know, which handles wool products. You know, sort of, we've got such a diverse range of people who've engaged us. And it would just be great to sort of actually deliver for some of them and push it forward. Um, and grow it, just grow it into a sustainable business that you know, is actually helping small companies out there. Brilliant, yeah. So the, the next kind of series of questions are going mm. to be more about the future of the workplace rather than just your company. Yeah. So with regards to the future of work, how do you see robots impacting that? I mean, I personally think that the automation sector is targeting the dangerous and dull jobs. So whether it be in nuclear and you've got to, you know, don't want people dealing with the materials, um, sounds trivial, but a dangerous job is handling some frozen food. You're in a blast chiller for a couple of hours, and you know these shifts come on and off, and your rate of 
getting sick and ill when working that job is so much higher than that of someone who is sat in an office. Wouldn't you rather that worker was actually sat outside the room controlling the robot? Because nowadays, robots are being built where you don't need to know code. You just need to be able to manage it and identify a problem. And that process can be done quite easily now through web browsers. So rather than having the worker in your blast chiller handling ice cream, for example, you've managed to like remove them from that position where they only need to go in occasionally if there is an error. And it's a much safer environment for them. You know, dull jobs would be sorting crab shells. You know, I can't. I probably wouldn't be able to find many people who, you know, when they left school, said, "I want to go sort crab shells." You know, for some people, it is a means to an end. But wouldn't the means to the end be much more favourable for them if they were able to be sorting the crab shells, but sat back controlling a system that did that and managing it? So they're not on their feet for twelve hours a day. I think if you were to there's. Channel 4 did the panorama on JD Sports' warehouse. It's you know, prison-like conditions up there. And so I don't think anyone can argue that it's a good thing forcing people to work those bad hours. It is definitely going to be a case of finding the sort of right balance between the two. Uh, but currently, if you buy stuff from JD Sports, the reason it's so cheap is the people are treated terribly. So at the moment, it's not fantastic either. So it's, you're not, it's not a great system even at the moment. But if you look at countries like South Korea and Germany, which most people consider very advanced and good, those are two of the highest deployments of robots in the world. And yet they've got low unemployment, good healthcare systems. You know, there's not a great class divide. And so currently the evidence would suggest that actually this Terminator dystopia that people look at isn't going to happen when the current evidence suggests you get healthier, happier workers. And in you know, a lot of these factories in Germany where they've got a lot of automation, I think the highest in Europe, they, their workers don't work a you know, full week. They, do four, you know, they can do four days, not five days. But that's, sort of, that's the balance that they're striking. So you might not have the sort of same pay as the managers, but you're managing a small robot's line and you're getting a three-day weekend because the robots allowed the company to do that. So there's... I ultimately think it will be for the benefit of people um, and it will ultimately lead to you know, a more prosperous society and probably bring more people out of poverty just because you know, it will enable more jobs and it will speed up the process and make goods more accessible. The issue is the consumer also is driving this. You know, taking other people who've given bad responses, you know, they're still not willing to pay the sort of absolute premium it would cost, you know, why don't you buy a handmade Morgan wooden car? Well, they cost an absolute fortune, but you're willing to buy the Ford car, but the Ford car's pretty much automated in its making process. So it's sort of, it's easy to sit there and preach, but ultimately a lot of things already in the sort of big sectors that we see are automated. Everyone loves Amazon. That's very automated. Mm -hmm. So I think the evidence suggests that it is not doom and gloom. Um, at the moment we're seeing with countries which are successfully deploying it and it unlocks growth more than anything and increases GDP which ultimately benefits everyone as a whole. So what you spoke about previously with regards to the freezers. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to go back and <clears throat> I had a question around that. So do you think, because what you were talking about then is, is it is a dull and dangerous job. Do you think mm. Bringing in robotics and automation also adds an element of gamification or problem solving to a to a task, or do you think 
people are just going to be supervising robots. I don't know if I'll go as far as saying it's you know, you're gamifying the situation for someone to make it more engaging. But for let's take the worker who is you know, sorting frozen goods into pallets inside these blast chillers. It's a pretty unpleasant experience. Whereas instead they will be outside walking around the sort of, you know, facility that they're in. You know, the example we know of is you, know, you could quite easily equip a few of them with an iPad and things like that. And so then they're getting live updates, it's sort of, it's engaging. So it's not a sort of a do something for five minutes, sit around for 30. Because of the systems now that exist, the data and the information coming to them is live. And so they constantly need to be working. So they won't be bored either. So you've removed the dangerous and the dull element of the job because they will be handling a range of information. You know, but the information isn't coming through in complex code these days anymore. You know, that's behind the scenes, that's already been done, but it's coming through in a format that they can understand. So we are well aware that this person is not, you know, who works in the blast chiller, did not go to sort of, you know, Bristol University and get an you know, engineering degree to work with robots. Yeah, they may have never been to university, potentially. So you can't make it a system that they can't access. So the whole idea is it's, it's quite a visual, easy, you know, drag and drop set of instructions that they can program and things. So it makes it accessible as well. So I, I wouldn't go as far as get, saying you're gamifying it because you, it's still going to be you know, processes and work. But it's a much easier way to do. And Ocado is a really good example. They've got automated warehouses. And all it's done is enable them to employ more people, you know, and they've upskilled some of their staff in-house because, you know, as the systems develop, that person's going to know more about the system than anyone else you can bring in. And so then you keep those staff and your retention's better and things like that. So I wouldn't use Gamify, I'd just say it's going to be more engaging the work. With regards to other robotics technologies, is there anything you kind of look at and go, this is really, really cool. I mean, self-driving cars. I hate traffic. Hate traffic. I mean, it could, it'll just speed everything up. You know, people won't break erratically. No offence to sort of, you know, old people, bad drivers, or sort of people with bad eyesight, but they won't be driving. You know, they'll just sit back and the car will do. You know, they won't be sat in sort of the middle lane of a motorway for their whole journey going at 60. And everyone else is kind of going around. It creates a, you know, those sort of like, Benefits, I think, are going to be huge. You know, you'll get to London and you'll save 30 minutes on your journey because you'll get in the car and it will just flow. Um, those two things, I think, are going to be brilliant. Um, I'd say so there is a... Con- I, if I had to pick something to worry about, it's sort of, you know, the technology, once it gets into the wrong hands sometimes, like, you know, some of this stuff's quite powerful, the ability to control systems and sort of hack into software as everything becomes so dependent on it. You know, most companies have probably experienced some sort of cyber attack, but you know, when it starts becoming everything so connected, there are just more points that can be attacked. So there is that as a danger on the flip side. I enjoy the sort of Boston dynamic stuff. That sort of seems a bit sort of trivial and sort of, you know, for the cameras, but it's quite fun to watch. You know, Sometimes I question the real practicalities of it. Yeah. You know, but you know, I guess if anyone's going to make a Terminator, it's them at this stage, isn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, that sort of stuff I think is brilliant and it's just really cool. If you're just trying to engage people and sort of raise awareness, that's a really great way to start going about it because it's, it's more fun for Instagram to watch something walking upstairs that you know, looks like human or a dog 
you know, walking around. The practicalities of it, can't see it. I think also technology in the home as well will start becoming much more sort of, you know, sensible as people push towards a sort of, you know, greener future. It sounds trivial, but simple things like knowing when you can turn a machine on and off in a factory will save energy. And so when you start doing that across sector industries, it starts to save huge amounts of time. And so a simple example is coming back to our blast chiller earlier, is that they found that you know, they were sending people in and out of the door and the door almost lives open. And so the machine's working overtime, whereas actually you could collect all your goods outside and have one run in every hour. And just there are better ways of managing it and they can reduce their energy consumption enormously. So win for them, paying less. But then also, air conditioning, freezers use huge amounts of energy. And so then there's sort of you know, knock-on effects of you know, a better environment and those sort of things. So I think that will bring a lot of, sort of potential. Um, and would be interested to see the role that more technology is going to play, particularly in sort of the climate change environments, future that's coming. Yeah. You know, even like a few days ago in Bristol, the river burst at Banks, you know, just with a bit of heavy rain. And it's sort of, they're surely, you know, with you know, the internet of things, a handful of sensors along the riverbank at certain levels would provide a much better warning and a simple you know, system to warn the houses like that it's coming and they could have probably saved thousands of pounds worth of damage. And so those are benefits which seem so trivial but actually to implement wouldn't cost a fortune either. And Bristol Council could very easily roll out a few waterproof you know, housed computers along the riverbank, a load of sensors, and as each one pinged, the residents in high-risk areas got sent a text saying, you know, there is a flood, there is a risk of flooding. And all you've got to do is put one of those gates down across the front of your house if there's a bit of it, or, you know, there are systems now which you can put, and just, it saves them from, you know, having to make an insurance claim and all these sort of things. Those little little bits which seem so trivial, but would make such a difference in someone's life. It's you know, it's going to ruin the next three weeks or so on that. And the weather gets kind of crap, not ideal. And it's all those small benefits that come with it. But it takes you know, companies to sort of invest and develop that. But those sort of IoT sensing systems are the sort of thing that we'd love to sort of work with councils on as we roll it out into industry. Obviously, the you know, Bristol Council, for example, is still an industry. And it still requires that sort of technology. It might not need robotic arms, but we use sensing technology and that could be beneficial to them too. So there's a wide range of things I think that would be really exciting and actually make like, people's lives easier, better and stress-free. Or anything, any, any projects you're currently working on? Uh, we're working with a range of companies. Um, we work in a range of sectors, ranging from, as I mentioned, artisan chocolate makers, yoghurt companies, beverages, uh, we fold boxes, we, we're looking to fold boxes in fulfillment centres and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a fairly diverse range of things that we do um, and given sort of the fact we use a range of tools means we can normally help most people. You know, we've just got a series of very clever spanners that we can deploy to different tasks mm. and you know, these the spanners become very intelligent now suddenly and it can do a range of jobs for a small company. I think the main thing for us is as well that traditionally all these systems you know, would cost you £100,000 north of that to sort of just get in the door, let alone train and run. We're, you know, having built a lot of it ourselves, we've helped reduce that cost. But also the way that we are financing it is by doing an as a service. So the company won't own the physical tools they're using, 
but hopefully it will enable them to access them by paying a monthly fee or maybe a quarterly fee, whatever that ends up being structured depending on the company. There might be a way of you know, providing access to it by you know, using sensible financing plans. Mm -hmm. And so you know, selling IoT systems as a service rather than trying to force companies to you know, take a bank loan out or anything, you know, it will do the least damage to their cash flow because for them as well as us, cash is king in companies and you need it to survive and keep running. You, know, you need to do payroll. So by running it as a service, hopefully, we take some of the stress off for the companies and make the decision-making process easier for them. We know a lot of these companies, you know, particularly the ones we're working with at the moment, not, you know, they're not startups. You know, they're not venture-backed. They've been around for years, and they will be around for years afterwards. You know, it's someone's personal you know, money that they, they set up. Maybe they started in their kitchen living room, never raised money, and they've just grown it organically year after year. And so they don't have a sort of, you know, big backer who can suddenly write a cheque for them knowing the payback will come in three years' time. Mm -hmm. They've got to make decisions on payroll needs to be made next month. I can't buy an arm. And that, that decision will happen every single month. And so they might be desperately wanting to like, increase productivity, but they can't fire start. Yeah, you can't just go around firing people. So that's where the... A small you know, monthly fee comes in and it's like okay I can see how that fits into the you know, process that they have as a company and then they can start rolling it in and it becomes easier so you then slowly integrate into the systems brilliant thanks very much for coming in no worries at all pleasure thanks for thanks for having us well hoping to come to some more bot hive events and uh, oh, you know I'm having been listening to some of the podcasts so far <laughs> <laughs> obviously I managed to get myself on one now as well but uh, you know Great to come see some of the events and you know, watch what Bot Hive does, you know, promoting robotics within the industry. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It was great to sit down with Arthur. Since the podcast, he's released his company name. It's Indus4. I think it's a really good name. The branding's really good as well. So if you want to go check that out, there'll be a link in the podcast description on our website. So the website's bot-hive.com. In the meantime, you may have heard last week, Bot Hive are hosting a robotics event. It's kind of like TED Talks, but with robots. It's called Bot Talks. It's in Bristol. It's on the 20th of November, 2019. If you can come along, it's at the Watershed. Tickets will be in the show description. If you can't make it, or the event's already gone, because you're listening at some point wildly in the future, follow us on social media. Our handles are at WeAreBotHive across Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Or you can tweet me at JJ underscore Stockwell. If you like the show and want to help keep it going, feel free to share it with anyone who you think might be interested in robotics. Or if you want to be part of the show, let us know. We're always looking for people who have got an interest in robotics story or have a background in tech. Speak to you next week.